0: everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it.
1: Real estate will always go up, it'll always go down. There's only two years, by the way, two years in the last 70 plus years that we've had negative appreciation rate nationally as an average. And one of them was 2008, which is the biggest debacle because we were giving loans out for free to anybody that could get them. And that's been fixed. So... You know, when to buy, when not to buy. You can try to time the market. Um, I will tell you that doesn't work. So when you look at the housing market, number one, I feel like it's the safest damn place you can put your money out there. I've got a bunch of money stuck in the S&P index and I worry about that all the time.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. I am so happy that you are here today because I know that we are gonna answer a lot of questions that are on your mind because I know these questions are on my mind. I'm wondering about where the housing market is today and what the heck's going on with that. And if you're trying to figure out how and when to buy a house, I think today's podcast might enlighten you and give you some guidance and some strategy. I, I mean, sometimes, you know, I look at like where interest rates are and I look at how low inventory is. And I think, you know, where are we going with this? What's going to happen in 2024? And, you know, what, what should you do if you want to be a residential buyer? What should you be thinking if you want to be an investor in the real estate market? And it just so happens that today's guest, Sean Kaplan, who is, I might add, an honorary fiscal feminist, is going to be here today to let us know all about these things that I'm wondering about. So Sean, uh, also known to his followers as Cap, I'm going to call him Sean, is a true pioneer in the mortgage industry. And he's also kind of a beacon of light because he has an amazing personal story. He's overcome a lot of adversity and now he's a top mortgage broker. He's I think he's done like over a billion dollars in closed mortgages. That's a billion with a B. You know, he's a top guy in his field. So, Sean, welcome. Thank you for sharing your time with us today from Franklin, Tennessee.
1: I am so honored to be here. Thank you, Kimberly, and I'm honored to be a, a honorary fiscal feminist. That that means a lot to me. <laughs>
0: i don't I don't usually interview a lot of dudes, so I mean I'm like you're special okay It means that you've got something in, very important to say here today. My
1: mama would be proud of me,
0: yeah, I mean you're awesome, so i mean you're you have had a lot of financial hurdles that you've had to overcome, so I always like my audience to know a little bit about who I'm interviewing because you know, I think we're all interested in how'd Sean get to be Sean, and what did he have to do to get there, and why did you choose to be a mortgage broker after all the stuff that you had to overcome? What, what was your journey? And then we can get on to what the heck's going on in the housing market.
1: Yeah, Cliff Notes version of, of my journey, I was telling you a little bit earlier, you know, I, I was un- unfortunate. I lost my father when I was six years old. My sister was six months old, and uh, I had a single mom, grew up with a single mom who worked three jobs. IRS took everything from my father, so she didn't get anything. She was basically on the streets, you know, and family took us back in, helped us. And my mom just always worked really hard and provided for us. We always had a roof above our head, always had a meal on the table. But um, I saw that work ethic and, you know, with not having any money, you know, if you want to go to college, well, then you better figure it out. So I figured it out, which was borrow as much money as I can to go to college. And uh, from a guy that knocked on our door one day and said, you need some loans, you know, you want to go to college, sign <laughs> wow. on the dotted line. And so five years later, six years later, I don't know which plan I was on. I think I was on the six-year plan. I thought I wanted to be an engineer, and I walked out of college with a uh, a debt of about $146,000. Oh. Uh, nobody ever taught me about money. Um, my mom certainly wasn't going to teach me about money, but she t- cheered me on to go to college and was there to, you know, encourage me send me home with warm meals. But once I graduated from college and those student loans started knocking, I knew I was in trouble. And uh, so I worked three jobs. I waited tables at two restaurants and I bartended. And while I was trying to find a job with my degree, yet the degree that I was trying to get a job in was paying $40,000, $50,000 a year. And I was like, well, I'm making twice that just being in the restaurant industry. And I was waiting tables one night and I met a mortgage guy. And kind of the rest was history. He asked me if I wanted to sell mortgage loans. I didn't know what that was. But I met him out at his office a week later, and he took me underneath his arm, and he was my first real mentor. And he said, you know, if you want to learn how to make money, pay off your debt, you know, I'll show you how. I'm going to do this for another two years. And uh, I'll mentor you, but you have to do everything I tell you to do. And I was like, okay. And I was used to that because I had a pretty bossy mom. And uh, (laughs) so I knew he was successful. I saw his tax return. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to do whatever he tells me because I know I'll be successful. And I know I can run circles around all these other fancy mortgage guys wearing fancy watches and suits because I know yeah. I'm a harder worker. And what was cool about the mortgage industry was it wasn't sports. It wasn't music. It wasn't things that you had to be born good at. I At, at mortgages, I was like, wow, so if I just work harder, get always get better, I can be really successful in this industry. And that was kind of the rest was history. I just, I've just i always been on this 23-year journey now of just getting better every year, trying to be better, uh, breaking things to make them, you know, fix them and, you know, improve systems and processes. And, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm not the one of the biggest in the country, but I've been a top producer, probably top 1% or 2%, you know, for 8, 9, 10 years running, and it's been a great career.
0: Well, your story is really inspirational, and, you know, it's always this combination of kind of You know, opportunities, divine intervention put in front of you, and then you capitalizing on them. And you're networking. You're out there. You're talking to people. And also, again, as I say this frequently, so don't roll your eyes, everybody out there, but, you know, our career journey is not linear, right? So it's kind of, we have to be out there keeping our options open, keeping our eyes open, networking, talking to people, and you know, sometimes you have a job as a bartender may not be your calling, but it may be that bridge job that, you know, you're making good money and it gets you to the next thing. So don't be so quick to, you know, to look down on those certain things because they could lead you to other things that might change your life. Right. So just keep yourself out there in the mix. Now, overcoming $146,000 in debt is no small thing. We talk a lot about paying down debt in this podcast and all the methods to do it and the why. But, you know, definitely that's kind of a very important thing to have your net worth start getting bigger, because if you have debt, it's really hard to increase your net worth. But I wanted to also say that in addition to being a mortgage broker, Sean is also very involved in kind of He's a, he's also called the hope dealer. He really believes in trying to get people to tell their stories and to spread the word of hope and keeping you know keeping the faith in ourselves and what we want to do on this earth. So in making our dreams come true, because isn't that what this is all about? Right, living our best lives. So the first question I want to ask you, and I mean, just because I'm sure a lot of people are a little, some people are confused by this. I know the answer, but I need you to explain it. Is some people wonder what's the difference between a mortgage broker and a mortgage lender? Because you can get mortgages in different ways, right? You can go to the bank or you can talk to a mortgage broker. So can you just give us a little background about what that is so that, you know, people who may not understand it know how to categorize those things?
1: Absolutely. The best analogy I've always given people is think just like homeowners insurance. You can go directly to State Farm and get state farm insurance, or you can go to an insurance broker, and he's going to put you with multiple different carriers, progressive, you know, whatever, Liberty Mutual, whatever it might be. So in mortgage world, you have direct lenders, mortgage bankers, and then you have people that are mortgage brokers, which are just intermediaries in between. So they'll find you as a client, and they'll go try to place you with an outlet. There's pros and cons to both. I've been broker and banker. I will tell you, I've been banker longer than I have broker for the last 15 years because I make all the decisions in-house. All of our decisions are made by our company. Um, You'll make your payments to our company. There's just a lot more control. The other thing is we're not layering the risk, which in turn layers the interest rates. So you can get better interest rates in some cases by going directly to a banker. Now, a broker... With a broker, sometimes you can get access to some stuff that you can't get out there from a mortgage banker as far as products go. But right. I will tell you, I think that the pros definitely outweigh the cons of going with a banker over broker, but that's kind of the big argument in my industry, which is better, you know, but... Right, um, right. The other thing as a broker is I have more resources because I'm using a $70 billion company's platform and money and technology and utilities you know, to service that client, where a broker, it all comes out of their pocket. And so in a time when um, a lot of people don't invest back into their business or add services, you know, sometimes brokers don't do that, you know, because they don't have the resources to do it. I'd rather just be a good mortgage guy and let the company do the rest of it. Ignorance
0: is not bliss. So I know when I bought my house, I was kind of like, okay, you know, I want to buy this house. And I wasn't quite sure where to begin. I started with my bank and then I was like, eh, you know, this isn't, maybe I can do better than this. I ended up talking to a mortgage broker and talked to a bunch of people through him, but then I ended up going with a bank. I went with Wells Fargo in the end, but this was a while ago and my interest rate's really good because I bought the house in sure. uh, 2020 so um, but it was really confusing to me as to where to start with this and I'm a wealth manager so you know I have some you know people I can speak to but it there was just like so many options out there it was really hard to you know to kind of get organized as to which one I was going to take but if you're thinking about buying a house and you've got okay credit what would you recommend is the first step that people should be taking to find someone like yourself
1: Okay. So that's a really great question. You know, a lot of people will do what you did, which they'll go into a bank um, or they'll go online right now. Those, I believe, are the two biggest mistakes you could make. You would never walk directly into a doctor's office and say, hey, who's the cancer doctor here? I need somebody to help me. No, you're going to do research. You're going to ask somebody else who had cancer. So this has always come natural to me growing, you know, growing up with a single mom, I would always go to Steve, and ask Steve to teach me how to throw a curveball. Right. I would always go to my uncle to show me how to work on a motor. And so I, if you're, you're somebody out there, especially if you're a female, number one, I would probably ask the most successful person, you know, that owns real estate, who they would speak to if you wanted to borrow money to buy a house, you know, ask them, right? Right. Right, Um, Real estate agents are a great example to ask because they deal with us all day long. But you got to make sure you're dealing with a realtor that produces at a certain level because so many realtors out there don't close any business. So I would vet it that way. And the third thing is if you're using a professional service like an attorney or a financial planner, ask them because they deal with them usually on an all-day basis and they've already vetted them. But that's the best way. Do not get online and do not just walk into your bank.
0: Yeah. And I know online, you know, you get all these things from Rocket Mortgage and Quick, and You know, there's just so many things out there that are constantly popping up. But I actually started off with my realtor. I also talked to some people I knew through our wealth management business who were brokers. And then I ultimately got referred to Wells Fargo, because at the time they were actually doing a really good job for some of our clients with really good rates. And and so that worked out for me. But you do have to talk to a number of people. So take that on board. So, be okay, so let's just get into more macro topics at the moment, because I think a lot of people like look at the housing market and especially I think a lot of younger people just think they're never, ever going to be able to own a home. You know, what factors do you think are currently influencing the housing market and what trends do we see now and do you expect to see going forward over the next couple of years?
1: Okay, so you you're you're speaking to a dumb Vermont farm boy. I grew up on a 1300-acre dairy farm, so I'm very utilitarian, okay? I I don't really necessarily worry too much about trends and flows. I'm usually Going by uh, gut decisions that I know just from previous experiences when things work out and when they don't. Now I do feel like I'm extremely educated in that area, but it's only by the trend of looking at a thousand plus applications a year. Right. You know, I can look at affluent people's applications and I can look at other people that are struggling, and I can say what are the trends? What? And that's how I built my wealth. I went from one hundred forty six thousand dollars in debt to a five million dollar net worth, just solely by copying what wealthy people have done. So here's the thing. Real estate will always go up. It'll always go down. There's only two years, by the way, two years in the last 70 plus years that we've had negative appreciation rate nationally as an average. And one of them was 2008, which is the biggest debacle because we were giving loans out for free to anybody that could get them. And that's been fixed. So trends, you know, when to buy, when not to buy, like you can try to time the market. Um, I will tell you that doesn't work. It's just like the stock market it doesn't, you know, right. you've probably told your people you cannot. But if you go to a roulette table, because I love roulette and I love blackjack, but if you go up to a roulette table and I look and I've noticed that there's 15 red numbers that have been called and there's only been two white numbers that have been called. My wife, I'm going to tell her I have to stop and put some money on that. So when you look at the housing market, Number 1, I feel like it's the safest damn place you can put your money out there. I've got a bunch of money stuck in the S&P index and I worry about that all the time.
0: Uh, yeah, well, you should be more diversified than that, but that's a whole other podcast. Okay. I <laughs> we was talk diversified. About that later.
1: I was <laughs> diversified for years and probably just like some of your competition out there just like my competition, they screwed it up because they just overcomplicated it and I was like, "You know what? Screw this, take 2 million bucks and put it in the S&P index. That's what I want." But number one, I feel like it's safe. You can feel it, you can touch it, you can experience memories in it. Number two, it's your best tax deduction in most cases that you can get. But number three, for this dumb Vermont farm boy, when it was explained to me that you get this asset for a fraction of the value of it, and someone explained return on investment to me, that light bulb went off. And I said, wait a minute, I can get this $300,000 house for $15,000 out of pocket? And if it goes up $100,000 and I lived there for two years, I pay zero taxes on it. Well, I just made 20, 30% return on my investment and I just avoided 20 to 30% in taxes. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. I just rinsed and repeated over and over and over.
0: So you were actually living, you were buying homes, living in the homes for a couple of years, and then you were selling them at a higher price. So you were actually living in the houses.
1: Yep. I would move into it. So I was like, well, that's not the house I really want. But I was like, I don't care. I know it's going to go up in value. It's near MTSU. And so I would put the minimum down payment down. And then I'd live there for two years. So I would get the primary residence exclusion.
0: Yeah, the $250,000 or $500,000. Yeah.
1: In the the second year, my plan was I was going to rent it out for two years and 11 months. Because if you rent it out for more than three years, total of five, then you lose that primary residence inclusion. It moves over to investment property capital gains. And right. Then you got to use a 1031. So my model was buy two years, rent for almost three years, sell. And okay. so I did that multiple times. I paid off all the debt. And the couple, then I found out that you could also, it might make sense for me to buy primary residence and move a little bit more rapidly. Because by that time I was getting married, wife didn't want to live in properties for two years. And so I'd buy a bigger, better house each time and put minimal amount of money down and invest the difference.
0: So let me, let me ask you a question, because when we're talking to people in our wealth management practice, and I'm talking to people about their portfolios and also the assets that they own, everybody, some people own homes. And I always say, okay, so the home is there. And if, you know, you really need to sell it at some point, that's down the line. But we often say like your house is your home. So although you may have equity in it, you can borrow against it, I guess, but it really isn't liquid for purposes of your, you know, of your net worth down the line. Cause maybe you don't want to move when you're 70 from the house, but it's cause it's your home. It's not necessarily an investment. How do you categorize, you know, your residential home as a place where you're living and may not want to move from as part? I mean, it is part of your net worth, but do you consider it an investment? um or do you think of it more as just an asset that you're holding because you really love your home and you don't want to sell it and how do you you know how do you weigh that with investment property because it's kind of a a murky area in how you define these things
1: i think i understand the question um my house has always been an investment to me up until the current home i live in now
0: and why and why is that
1: because it was a means to get to the home that i've had up on the wall for 7 years blueprint farmhouse 20 acres get back to my roots That was there on the wall. And so I always knew that those houses were a means to get where we wanted to be. Um, The the two houses before the one we built, we really loved those homes. And I was like, man, what would life be if we would have just stayed there? Probably would have been able to pay them all off, had a bunch of money in the bank, you know. But now we live on 20 acres. It's a New England farmhouse. It's just our dream property. But even now, this house, like... I mean, we got two million and I think it was worth four and a half million. I told my wife, somebody comes along and wants to write a five million dollar check, this place is gone. Yeah,
0: you'll take it. Yeah. Because for me,
1: <laughs> for me, I've seen too many people die around me with dream properties, but not being able to live their dream life. Right. So the most important thing to me is to not have to come to the office every single day if I don't want to. Not a certain property. So that really is just a, a mindset question for somebody on how they want to handle it. But I think If it's not your dream property and you're not in a place that you could independently retire, then you should be shifting your thinking to how can I leverage real estate to get this ROI and get this money so I can then live the way I want to live or live in the property I want to live.
0: Yeah, and I love this idea, especially for younger people. Instead of like saying, okay, I'm not going to buy a house unless I can buy this, you know, this dream house that I have in my head, maybe start small and, you know, do what Sean did because by buying these other homes, he was able to leverage up and, you know, he kept, he was able to just keep going and getting bigger and bigger. And he was using it as part of his financial plan to increase his net worth by being flexible. So there is that. So let me ask you a question. I mean, if you are a person now and you see interest rates where they're at, you know, do you think it's a good time for people to like dive in or should they wait? I mean, should they buy buy a house and hope to re- refinance later? What? How are you advising people and, you know, what kind of interest rates are you seeing people paying now? I mean, we, we know what it is on a third year, but I want to hear it from you. But, you know, these interest rates are daunting to a lot of people because it means sure. many of them will probably have to buy a smaller house, right? Because it's going to cost more.
1: So, I'm going to answer that question, but first... I want people to just understand the basic math around something. And the basic math around something is if you have a three hundred thousand dollars purchase or a five hundred thousand dollars purchase and you get it at four percent and you get a five hundred thousand dollars purchase at seven percent, which is about where rates are at right now. You know right. your mortgage payment, yes, it's gonna be six seven hundred dollars more per month. Thirty-six hundred to forty-eight hundred dollars more in a year. Now it doesn't sound like as much. Less than five thousand dollars more in a year. But if a five hundred thousand dollar home goes up five percent, that's twenty-five thousand. If it does that for five years, that's one hundred and twenty-five thousand. And if you only put down fifty grand to make one hundred twenty-five thousand, it doesn't matter if the rate's four percent or seven percent, uh, as long as you can afford it. So, right. I love following Barbara Corcoran, Glenda Baker. They're two ladies that I really admire Mm -hmm. and I pay attention to. And both of them have said the same thing. This is exactly what's going to happen. You know, I could be wrong. And if I am, like, come back in this interview will haunt me. But I've been saying it over and over. These interest rates will come down. Yes. Barring some sort of nuclear war, whatever, something really bad happening. These interest rates will come back down. Now, here's what's going to happen. Everybody that's sitting and saying, I'm waiting right now is all of a sudden going to feel they're going to get FOMO when all of a sudden people in five and a half, six percent range say, Oh my gosh, my cousin's now buying a house. We should buy a house. And the market's going to r- rapidly grow, uh, pick up momentum faster than anybody's going to be able to time it. And then they're going to jump in and say, I should buy a home too. And we're going to be back in the overbid, waiving appraisals, waiving inspections, cash offers are winning the game and you're going to be left out. And that's going to buoy those home prices up 10 and 15 and 20%. In my opinion, more rapidly than it was two years ago, because our inventory is more depleted yes. and we've been building up home buyers a pent up demand. They said if interest rates go down by 1%, that 2 million home buyers will hit the market. We'll go from 4 million homebuyers to 6 million. Well, we barely have over a million and a half homes that are actively listed right now. So, you know, you're going to be paying a lot of money for the Tickle Me Elmo if you wait.
0: Yeah, I haven't thought about that in ages.
1: Remember that? It was in the <laughs> store are- and you wanted to go get one and people would buy it yeah, and turn around you'd and, and sell it on line, eBay right. for $500. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I think what you're saying, and I just want to you know, say maybe another way, which is, You may be paying a little bit more in the interest rate, but the price of the home is going to go up and the acceleration in the price of the home is going to maybe offset the price that you're paying in interest.
1: Absolutely. Because you'll be
0: able to sell it for a lot more because your your price expansion may outweigh over time the additional interest that you're paying. Talk to me a little bit about, okay, I'm a person, I've got a mortgage at 7%. Now interest rates go down. What should I do?
1: Yeah, so about a year ago, I was on a podcast interview and uh, I said, the interest rate is temporary, the house is permanent. Two weeks later, somebody that I know came up with this cute little slogan that said, date the rate, marry the house. So I will take credit. Like that. That, that, yeah, love that. that. That quote that everybody has been saying for over a year, it came from my podcast interview. But the truth is, the interest rate is temporary. You can refinance it once a year, twice a year, every two years, whatever. And so what happens is you've already got the home at the value before it exploded, but then when it went up and then interest rates went down, well, now you can leverage that lower interest rate, replace the mortgage loan is all you're doing. You know, for people that want to know, all you're doing with a mortgage loan at 7% is a new bank is replacing it at a lower interest rate. And the best thing is you get to use that new improved value of that property too when you refinance, which will benefit you. So, if somebody, especially people going through a divorce, they should be going, in my opinion, and they should buy a new property, put 10 or 20 percent down if they can, and invest a difference and put it on the sidelines, because they're probably going to refinance that loan in the near future anyway, and at least they'll have investments to fall back on, and they'll be, you know multiplying their return on investment in their home and also in their wealth that they've sat with their invi- advisor.
0: I'm curious if there are different things that people have to hit for refinancing compared to getting a regular, you know, your original mortgage. What are brokers, the banks, what are people looking for, for people to hit, you know, to be able to get a mortgage? Like, I know people are right now feeling a little bit stretched. Uh, You know, they've been paying higher prices for a while. Like you, I believe interest rates are going to start going down in 2024. I think the Federal Reserve is going to have to do that at some point. Um, will it ever get down to 1%? No. no, again, but it will get, it will get down. And so, but when you're trying to buy a house, I think a lot of people just feel overwhelmed and think, well, what do I have to do to be able to afford a house? So can you just give us like the basics of that? Like I'm, maybe I'm a single mom trying to buy a house or maybe, you know, we have too much debt or whatever it is. What should people be trying to do to get themselves to a point where they can be approved for a mortgage and not have, you know, an exorbitant interest rate and have the process go as smoothly as possible.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So I'll go into that vanilla question, but first I want to give it some sprinkles because you know, some of your listeners are saying, yeah, but you guys don't know interest rates are going to go down. You're correct. We don't know interest rates are going to go down. I've had a bunch of people like send me hate mail and DMs. Let me just ask you this question. So this current administration isn't exactly doing amazing. And if Powell was to lower the Fed funds rate just by a quarter today, and it got in the news, what do you think would happen to the housing market? People would go crazy. Crazy, yeah. This administration, which he's a lawyer, not an economist, they're just holding on to that. And as we get closer to the election, they're going to encourage the Fed to lower the Fed funds rate because there's not really going to be a lot of other choices and Jerome Powell to say, I fixed inflation. I'm not the worst Fed chairman in history anymore. So when that happens, don't be kicking yourself if you didn't do something and capitalize on this investment. This is what the mortgage companies and the banks look for right now. I call it the three C's, credit, capacity, and collateral. The first C is you have to have a credit score that qualifies. You can go down technically to a 500 credit score with a direct lender like us, like a banker. That's one of the benefits. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with a broker, you might not build to, or some other smaller local banks. Most of them are at like a 600, 640 credit score minimum. Okay? But technically, per Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and FHA, you got to have a 500 credit score. Second thing we look at is on that credit, the second C is capacity. What is your income versus your debts, okay? Now, your income is your job. You don't have to have the same job for one or two or three years in a row. A lot of people have that misconception. You just have to have consistent job history. I've had people with eight different jobs, okay? So you can have different jobs. You just can't be out of work in general more than 60 days.
0: Okay, that's good to know because I've always thought people needed to have, you know, three years of this. I always have a pro. I have had I- issues, although you know, because I'm not a W two employee.
1: Right now, that's a different ball wax.
0: Yeah, so that was a whole other ball game. But you know, we overcame that because I have longevity. But I've always thought people needed to have these consistent jobs. So this is good to know.
1: Yeah, if you have, um, if you own your own business or you're you're a commissioned individual or bonused individual primarily, you can get a loan, but you have to have at least one year tax returns. If not, in most cases, two years now.
0: Yeah. But if you're
1: a W-2 hourly salaried employee, we're going to take your monthly income gross before taxes, insurance, any expenses, which is another thing people misconceive, is we'll take your gross income and we can use 50% of that in general towards mortgage, car payments, credit card, monthly. So if you make $5,000 a month, I got about $2,500 that I can use towards a combination of car payment, credit card payment, and a new mortgage. And that's how I qualify and reverse engineer what you, what you would be able to buy when you get pre approved and pre qualified. The last part is, uh, uh, is collateral, which is the property. And you can, you can buy new construction, you can buy an existing home, you can buy a town home, you can buy a condo, you can buy a mobile modular home. But in general, that property needs to be in move in ready condition. If it's not, And it needs to have some major repairs done to it for you to live in it. Then you're probably going to have to look at an alternative type of loan. But in general, it's like a car. If the key will start up and you can live in it, then your collateral is probably going to be okay.
0: Yeah. So those are the things, you know, if you're thinking about buying a house, just make sure you got your credit card debt, you know, not out the window burgeoning crazy because you're not going to get approved. And make sure that you understand this capacity idea of how much you're going to have, you know, there's kind of a ratio of what you're going to be spending on your fixed expenses and so on and so forth that they're going to be looking at and making sure that, you're, that you can, you can handle all those things and not end up on the street penniless.
1: A couple of years ago, I realized the need for people, people would, would be hesitant to talk to a real estate agent because they were afraid that they would have to buy right then you know, our our high-pressure sales tactics. So about two years ago, I started something called my Mortgage 411. And what I tell people is, hey, this blueprint, this 30-minute meeting, you get with me, a guy that's done loans for 23 years. I still do it myself. You get 30 minutes with me, and six to 12 months before you buy, I recommend. You go through that, and it's going to tell us, where are you at credit-wise? What can you do to improve it to get the best interest rates and lowest cost? What do you need to expect to have as money in the bank or cash out of pocket, like types of down payments to fit what you're looking for? And it gives people a tangible blueprint and goals to kind of aim for, you know, versus just kind of running into, hey, hello, I'm here. I want to buy a house.
0: Yeah, which is, I think, what most people do. Hey, let me ask you a question. So this my Mortgage 411. I love this idea. Um, Is this something that only people in Tennessee can access or can anyone in the country reach out to you?
1: No, I'm licensed in all 50 states.
0: Okay, so A, how do they find my mortgage 411? Just FYI, because I'm sure people are like, how do I get to this guy?
1: I would subscribe to my newsletters where I put all this information out um, for the consumer and for real estate agents. You could sign up for both of them, but um, it's dot 1926com And when you go to cap 1926com Um, my grandparents came to the country in 1926 and our name was different, but they couldn't speak English. So they just gave us the name of the people in front of us. And so therefore the Kaplans were established (laughs) in
0: 1926.
1: (laughs) So Cap 1926. But um, I send out newsletters um, once a week and it'll have this info. And if you need to get in contact with me or you want to sign up for a mortgage 411, you, you can just respond to that email or hit me up on the contact info on there. And then also on my Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, the Sean Kaplan, um, I always respond to those messages directly myself. So, you know, message me your question. I like for it to start with you know helping you answer a question, not just diving into you know getting all your personal details.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like this is like financial planning, right? But for buying a house, so it's really good. Knowledge is power. So if you know what you can do, that's going to a keep your search focused on what you can afford and also kind of broaden your search because you know what you can afford and you're not wasting time looking at a bunch of stuff that's just not going to make it. Sure. So I love this concept and I love that you have that platform. So I want to ask you another question because obviously I think a lot of women, and again, I focus a lot on women, but it, everything I talk about really is applicable to both men and women. I just want women to get the message to wake up and smell the coffee and realize they might have to you know engage with this stuff. But just say I'm divorced, I'm a single mom, things have changed in my you know my background. Is this in, an impossible thing for me to think about maybe i i don't I didn't come away with millions of dollars for my divorce i'm I'm just a working mom, I have maybe some money saved, but you know I've got one income. How is that analysis different, and is it impossible?
1: It is not impossible, but there are some choices that are made throughout the process of separation that really, really mess women up, and just education around it. So the first thing I always tell people, before the divorce is finalized or filed even, and you know you're headed towards that direction, get, a, get me involved, because what we'll do is we'll do that mortgage 411 and we'll say, when your divorce is over, based on what you've told me you guys are probably going to agree to, here's what you'll end up qualifying for. But the right. main thing is, Kimberly, it allows me to say, whoa, 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 what do you mean the child support's not going to be court ordered? Well, we just work something out amongst each other. Okay, now you're one year out from buying a home because now you got to prove to me 12 payments where a court order, I can look and say, oh, you're getting 2600 a month. I can immediately use that for income.
0: Right. So, yeah, don't agree to anything without a court order because that's just not smart.
1: Exactly. The second thing is, if there's an existing property involved, you know, maybe there's not a lot of money, but hey, somebody has a property and there's some equity in it. Right. That Another thing I can do is I can look at it and I can say, hey, the splitting of the equity would look like this. You got to remember, you can't pull out 100% of the value of a house in a refinance. But if you go and put it on the open market, you have waiting time. You might not get full offer. You got to pay real estate commissions. So sometimes I'll look at it and I'll say, let him have the house. He Make sure you get about this much equity out, out of the divorce. He has to refinance. And we'll be able to use that money and go get you your own place and leave you right. some money left over in the bank. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not a divorce attorney, but like I've had women who've gotten a divorce they didn't get a huge settlement. They got equity out of the house. They went and put three point five percent down on their new place, and they had a whole bunch of money that they had left over to be able to tuck away and restart their life. Where they've gotten advice from other people, and they get they get out of a property and get out of a marriage, and they go and put it all down on the next house, and now they're living paycheck to paycheck again.
0: A lot of women they want to buy out their husbands, and they don't. They can't afford to do that. You know, they don't want to leave the family home. They don't realize like. Some women aren't working immediately after because they haven't worked in a while or it's going to take them some time to figure out the lay of the land, but there's maintenance costs on the house. There's taxes on the house. So it's not just buying him out with, you know, your part of the settlement or whatever. It will be your financial undoing. Let me ask you a quick question because you said you put three and a half percent down on a house. How does somebody, what is that? How does somebody do that? What does that look like? So
1: another big, huge common myth, I think almost 80% of people think you got to put 20% down. My sister, my mother, um, hundreds of people that I've handled that got out of a divorce, literally hundreds, can get 3.5% down. And so that's the minimum required down payment. It's a 30-year fixed uh, loan. It's really low interest rates. Taxes and insurance are included. What most people do is they'll keep it for a year or two or three until rates drop And then they'll refinance it to a conventional mortgage loan at that time that has no PMI. So I don't want to get into PMI and all that. But when you put 3.5% down, you pay some PMI. Which is mortgage insurance. Correct. But that mortgage insurance is 50 to 150, 200 bucks a month. And I'd rather see a single mom with two kids end up leave $30,000 in the bank and have a manageable mortgage payment than to go into a property with no money in the bank, but pay no PMI. Yeah, I agree with you. 3.5% down, you can also do 5% down, uh, which gets a little bit better rate and anybody can qualify for those loans.
0: Yeah, so I mean the thing is, if you go if you're knowledgeable and you're talking to various mortgage brokers or bankers, make sure that you have this information. That's why I think, you know, checking out what Sean's doing, I mean, it will give you the knowledge, he can give you the guidance as well because a lot of times, especially when we're in a divorce or after divorce, we feel so overwhelmed. That, you know, we can't even think straight about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, and the more information you have, A, during the divorce, B, after the divorce, is going to help you be a little more economically sound than you might be. So if you could, you know, refine get this your partner to give you the money for half the house and then you can go put three and a half percent down on a new house and have a place for you and your children to live, you're going to be a lot happier than if you're just struggling just to get by in your house poor. Or you've tried to buy out your ex-spouse with some crazy notion that you're never going to live, leave the family home. I mean, look, why do you even want to stay in the family home? If, if your marriage sucked, do you really want to stay there and remember all that? Move on and get a new house. That's my advice. That's what I did. Yeah. and
1: yeah.
0: I never look back.
1: And you know, a lot of people are still sitting in a property with this ultra low interest rate with their new spouse, because they're just like, it's such a good rate. We don't want to sell. Well, ask your new spouse. They probably don't really care about the rate. They probably don't want to live in your ex's house. And there's solutions yeah. in lots of times, Kimberly, where they could sell that house, go buy a new house together and come out paying less than they were in a previous situation.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think we have to look ahead, right, and not cling on to the past. So, But I also think what you're saying is really pertinent to a lot of people, but especially women in divorces, because I think we let our emotions sometimes in a divorce control us, and we have these notions of, like, we're kind of hanging on to the past and looking to the future, and there's a mourning process. But you have to think about this tactically and strategically, because this is going to not only affect your current life and your children's life, but it's going to affect your retirement too, because the more you get your act together as quickly as possible after divorce, the greater you're going to be able to save for retirement and have, you know, a dignified retirement. So this isn't just like a one and done. This is like, this is a trickle down. It goes through your entire life, all of these decisions. So I think this is all really good advice. And I hope everybody is taking notes on this. Let me ask you a question. A lot of stuff, like you said before, is online and there's so many new technologies and things that people are kind of talking about in the housing market. How do you think that's shaping the future of the housing market and what you do and what people should be looking for that could be helpful to them in, in technology? Is there anything good coming out of technology that isn't leading yeah, yeah, down I mean, the, the, the ease path? It, the ease of
1: information is super, super helpful to the consumer. But as with anything, we got the information wars and you got to be very careful of what you're reading. The biggest thing thing that I see is that people are reading outdated info. You know, well, hey, I read on this website that an adjustable rate mortgage might be a good idea. No, no, no. That's really old. You know, or I heard you have to put 20% down. But the ease of access to being able to view properties um, Another thing is like the ease to be able to review loan estimates. So I have software that people get a link and it's got multiple loan options. It's got a video recorded. They can watch it when they need to watch it. And so, I mean, it's going to continue to accelerate the industry. And I do believe a large part of my, my industry is going to be, um, they're going to utilize AI in it. Uh, mortgages are pretty difficult to get. They shouldn't be so difficult. But that's something right now I'm just, I'm focused on, You know, running my own race would, you know, helping out my book of business, my clients with one-on-one service. And that will always be the big box people. But again, I deplore people, please do not make the mistake of just going to a website or going to a big bank because you think they care about you or they have the best products because it's really not the best way to go.
0: No, and they're very structured. So you have to understand like that these big entities are very, very structured and there's not a lot of wiggle room in these things. So if you need something that's a little more fluid and also just to get, I think, I love this. I want to go back to my mortgage 411 because I think that's a a really good way for people to get like a, a plan going that is realistic and helps them get the house that they love and can afford. So before we wrap up, is there any specific things, tips, strategies that you can tell borrowers and investors that they should, you know, be thinking about over the next year or two? Because as you said, I believe you believe interest rates are coming down. They will, maybe not immediately, but I think they will slowly start coming down to 2024. Certainly 2025, they will be, they will be. And you guys can shoot me later if I'm wrong and come back to me and say I was wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. So that's why I'm going to say it with verve. But, you know, if I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to make my move in 2024, what should I be considering? And is there anything I should be considering or should I just, you know, Call you and go for it.
1: (laughs) You know, besides plan early and often, you know, real estate is seasonal. I mean, you think about like right now during the holidays, I mean, it takes a crazy person to list their house for sale during November, December, and January. They got to be pretty darn serious, right? Right. So then you get into February, March, you know, and then things are going to start picking up, you know, April, May, June. So you want to be timing, you know, your real estate investment strategy seasonally also. But again, I just don't think you can time the market. I, I would tell people, the sooner you get in on the investment, the more it's going to go up, right? So the sooner that you can capture that investment, you'll actually have a return on your investment sooner. And so for there's no reason to continue to wait because you're only risking rates going down. And when they go down, the market's going to take off. And then you're going to be on the back end of that opportunity. So I would plan on buying a house in Q1 of 2024, if it was me. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, Q2 and Q3, I think you're starting to really play with fire that you could really miss an, a, a curve. And I mean by a curve like a $350,000 house being worth $400,000 in six months. That's a huge gain. I would rather pay three fifty than four hundred. Waiting will not get you anywhere. I talk to so many people and they just, by default, like you're walking in a department store, they just automatically say, uh, just, just waiting, just looking around. Are you really because you stepped into the store or do you just not want to get hassle to get bad information? Find the right people plan early and often and don't overthink it. That's my advice.
0: I think that's really good advice. And I just have one more question. Sorry. I have so many questions. Um, but if someone were to be buying a house in 2024, or even now, I think there might be fewer people looking at houses. So you probably aren't going to get, maybe you will get into a bidding war, but I don't know. Like, It kind of seems like because people are reticent about the interest rates, you might end up having a, you know, if you are qualified, you might be able to get something instead of waiting when everybody else is out there and there's like 50,000 bids, you know, for one house. So something else to think about. But I think if you do it right, you know. All times are the right time. So I think, you know, Sean's given us a lot to think about and some great guidance. Sean, just tell us again. uh, I know you've got a website, Instagram, YouTube. Tell us all again so we can all, you know, make sure that we know how to get to you again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram, my social media, YouTube, Facebook, they're all the at the Sean Kaplan. And then if you wanted to subscribe to my newsletters, um, if you want my weekly video tips or just keep up with what's going on, you can go to www.cap1926.com. And uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions, engage with anyone. And uh, I put out some pretty good content. I try to do things the opposite of what everybody else is doing. I try to make it engaging, short, easy, bite-sized, and applicable and useful. So I hope people will subscribe.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I've learned a lot today and I think a lot of people out there have learned a lot and hopefully they're going to hit you up and get some advice one-on-one because I think you seem like a really organized, strategic guy to get the job done. Thank you, Kimberly. So thanks guys for joining us today. Until next time. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com.